Hello and welcome to Office Hours by People Design. My name is Kevin Boodleman, President of People Design. And I'm here with my partner and strategy director, Jake Himmelsbach. Hey everyone. Office Hours is a time we set aside to discuss ideas we're thinking about at People Design and issues that we experience firsthand with our customers. Recently, we published a short piece on our blog and on LinkedIn and other uh, places called Hard Reset what's next for office furniture. And it's an article really that starts to explore the relationship between furniture and work. It's pretty clear that we are all uh, dealing with a, you know, an unprecedented crisis, this pandemic we're dealing with. And the, the disruption on the global economy is only likely just starting to be felt in a lot of segments. And it, I think it will take years for many industries to recover fully. And uh, the office furniture industry is certainly one of those. And you could also make the argument that the office furniture industry is, is poised for a pretty hard reset because of this, not only because of the damage to the economy, but because of what it means to have uh, to sort of be in the same place at the same time. It's interesting that the time that we spend in this industry um, it's pretty clear that a lot of office furniture companies talk a lot about issues that go beyond furniture. So things like ergonomics and productivity and culture and health. Uh, and, and while that's true, and while I think it's it's useful to explore the relationship between you know office furniture products and these themes, the conversation almost always comes back to furniture, and that's in part because you know the the profitability engine is all driven by you know, selling these durable goods uh, to customers and shipping them to places and installing them and so forth. I think that it's, it's clear that the, you know, that the industry is continuing to evolve and the landscape, market landscape is shifting, but, you know, change is very difficult and people resist change. We deal with change all the time and people design and it's one of these things where um, you can see it across different industries, but certainly it's very true within the office furniture space. You know, the, the mandatory stay-at-home orders we've all received have all kind of forced uh, different kinds of changes, um, and there's there's no question that there's it's starting to disrupt things. Um, certainly, as I mentioned in, in the office furniture world, um, but particularly because of how office furniture has had a kind of a relative sort of monopoly on the idea of work. A lot of office furniture companies talk about work and work styles, work habits, and so forth. Um, but the challenge with a lot of monopolies uh, today in this era of digital innovation is that a lot of monopolies are, are starting to erode. And so, you know, a lot of, you know, traditional monopolies have been sort of based on, uh, usually sort of based on proximity or kind of relative kind of uh, exclusive territory on a certain area. So, so uh, physical proximity for, let's say schools and banks or stores, but increasingly in the days of Amazon or online banking, that's no longer the case. And I think it's true also in terms of work, right? If you think about, you know, the, you know, typically if you think about the office furniture industry and how it's been built on the idea of, of building out offices where work happened all in the same time at the same place, uh, you know, that's, it, it's created a kind of relative monopoly for companies that created those products. But you know, now, um, it was certainly even before, you know, some of the, the work at home mandates that we're all living under. Uh, and, you know, some shifts have already started to happen in terms of working from home and using technology. But certainly this is starting to accelerate some of these kinds of changes. And we're all being forced to kind of reconcile with the fact that a lot of work can happen in different times in different places, which all, all that does is add, adding up to 
uh, you know, the, the industry as a whole starting to even further loosen its grip on the idea of owning work. And so if you've seen the article and have seen the little chart we put in there, um, we started to think about these different work modes, right? So if you think about if you kind of compare same time, different time, same place, different place, you can think about sort of four different area, areas of exploration. And so in, in the article, we kind of walked through uh, four of them. So starting with same time in the same place, that's kind of the traditional office, right? And I think, you know, many would argue, and it's, it's even, it's been interesting to see how this is, you know, pressure testing this idea right now with, the, with us all being in different locations, is, you know, it's still a useful thing. I mean, and there's even kind of cultural resonance to coming in and closing the door or looking someone in the eye. And, you know, technology is enabling more of, you know, work to happen remotely, but it can sometimes not take the place of kind of a, you know, one-on-one -on -one conversation that sometimes, sometimes hard conversations, personal conversations, that kind of thing are, are best best happen in that in that situation but there's no question that this is certainly the pandemic right now is is forcing this issue but i think increasingly there are, there are other pressures that are starting to sort of beg the question um, how much work really has to happen in that situation and i think that you know it, it sort of led office makers and people who, who manage facilities to think about offices differently in terms of you know maybe some ha work happens in that way and other work happens in a more collaborative or more open space as we all know and it seems to me that the overriding message in recent years for a lot of furniture makers has been to allow users to choose where they want to work. So some, you know, so there may be some one-on-one -on -one kind of private conversations, but then more open spaces too. What's interesting about that though, is that it's also led to a situation where a lot of offices are designed in such a way to um, almost have excess capacity. Because if you're going to give somebody a place to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation and another place to have kind of a, living room kind of experience. Um, it begs the question of how much space do you need and do you almost have, you know, the, 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 the cost drivers to push, you know, push the overall footprint to be smaller has uh, led to smaller and smaller offices, but then it sort of begs the question of how much space can you afford to have? And I think if you, if, if you start allowing workers to be kind of more nomadic and they have laptops and you give them, you know, potentially in some cases not even having their own office, of course, you know, they can float around. And of course, the chat, the interesting question becomes like, how far do they actually drift? Which kind of brings us to the second point or what we call individual work. If you think about individual work is kind of work that's happening at a different time in the same place, obviously allows you to have kind of, you know, you know, giving workers time to move around is fine. But the truth is they could walk right out the door and it kind of leads to kind of some of the sharing economy alternatives like WeWork and co-working spaces that have, have emerged in recent years. And it's become, you know, very interesting in terms of how, you know, we start thinking about, you know, where somebody needs to go. Do they need to be in the same place? Who's who's buying that office? Where is that furniture actually located? Jake has actually written an article uh, last month talking about uh, some of the user expectations that have emerged from the WeWork uh, phenomenon. You know, regardless of the outcome of that individual company, there's no question that kind of co-working kind of alternatives to kind of your traditional office space have, are starting to have an impact on the way we think about offices. And it's certainly, you know, so co-working spaces, you know, sort of come in a lot of different forms in terms of coffee shops and airports and hotel rooms and so on. But it becomes a question of like, where do people need to go to get the get work done? And it doesn't necessarily need to be in an office. It still may have furniture, 
but it's maybe not in, in the same place. Then if we start thinking about, you know, the, certainly the pandemic, the situation we're all dealing with now is sort of this idea of distance work, which is to say, maybe at the same time, but in a different place. And of course, we've all become extensive users of Zoom or other similar kinds of platforms. You know, there are business travelers, salespeople who have been used to dealing with kind of on the road kind of technologies for, you know, some time. And this is not new certainly for technologies like Microsoft Office or other kind of electronic tools. But, you know, there's no question that sort of video conferencing is becoming kind of a, a reality for millions of people, even who tended to be skeptics about these things prior to this pandemic. And it'll be interesting to see what happens as a result on the other side of it. But it's pretty clear that, you know, this kind of distance work is enabled more by technology than by furniture. So people are talking about, you know, Zoom. They're not talking about desks, right? But I think it's a question of how we think about technology. We, at People Design, like to think about technology as something that was invented since you were born. So what we mean by that is people under 30 may not, you know, view a smartphone as technology at all, right? It's just something that they use. And so if you can extrapolate from there, a lot of younger people, for a lot of younger people, new technology hasn't even emerged yet. So I think it sort of begs the question if we start to think about trying, if we are trying to support work and not just furniture, how might we innovate differently? And then the last part of the quadrant, we kind of explore the idea of asynchronous work, uh, which, you know, for some, particularly in, let's say, in software development world, this is becoming more and more of a reality. But for people in other kinds of areas, it's less common. But this is where, you know, basically you're in a different time uh, at, and a different place. And a lot of tools have emerged uh, that get around the idea of sort of almost like task management tools, um, you know, including, you know, there's a product called Asana or Basecamp. But even more than that, there are companies that really celebrate this idea of working, um, which is so it's obviously not even in the office, but not even trying to be at the same time like Zoom. Uh, where you're really just all contributing to this larger kind of project uh, where everyone plays a part. Um, and it's really started to beg the question about how, you know, examining how work actually gets done, you know, and companies like Automatic, which is the big global entity that produces WordPress or Basecamp itself, these are companies that have not only adopted these principles, but evangelized them quite heavily. And they, you know, they push for it. And while there have been some kind of, there's some ebb and flow, or as the pendulum has swung back and forth between the idea of being remote versus on location, um, there's no question that I think that there's a, there's a continued kind of march towards some companies adopting these kinds of ideas. And so it, it really, you know, if you think about those four quadrants that I uh, mentioned uh, a moment ago, right, where there's, you know, the idea of in-person work versus uh, individual work versus distance work versus asynchronous work. What it really means is that the traditional way we think about office furniture has, is getting a smaller and smaller part of the, part of the, the overall picture. And it may force companies to pivot. So a lot of furniture companies may start to really have, you know, maybe it's kind of shrinking the footprint for how we think about traditional offices, same time, same place. And, you know, it, it started to really sort of, you know, beg the question about what, what these companies will do next. And, uh, you know, as, you know, as you think about products that are being used at the home, in the home, for example, where are they going to get these products? So I think that, you know, in our mind, I think that it's one of the fascinating things that's happening about the, you know, as everyone is starting to envision the post pandemic economy, um, some things will return to normal. Some things will return to kind of people talk about a new normal. 
Um, but I also think that in some ways, it's also just accelerating some changes that were already underway. And, um, you know, these different modes of working in person, individual distance, asynchronous, um, you know, you know, there are going to be different modes for working and it's going to be pushing more and more on, um, again, some of these nascent trends that, um, were already happening. I mean, the idea of working from home is not new. I mean, I, I think that the entirety of my career, my exposure in this, this, even this furniture category, um, it's been su a subject of some discussion or debate, but it's becoming more and more of a reality. So, which is either scary or a good opportunity. I mean, there's no question that disruption itself creates opportunities, but it's, you know, opportunities and, and people, a lot of business people like to talk about disruptive change, but nobody actually likes to be disrupted uh, in a sense, right? And there, I think in this, in this process, there are going to be winners and losers. And um, one of the quotes I heard recently that I become quite fond of is the idea that managers manages, manage the known and leaders manage the unknown, which is to say, to be a leader, you've got to start forging ahead and trying to better understand what might happen and, you know, that what, what actually is going to happen next. Um, so I guess I would, I would recommend that organizations that have thought about themselves as furniture companies might start, to, but also like to talk about things like ergonomics and health and, and uh, culture and productivity. Um, if they, if you start to reframe how you think you think of yourself beyond just furniture company, but think about yourself as a work support company, for example, there may be these other quadrants that are, that are available to you for, for growth and that the future for a lot of these organizations is going to be continuing to explore kind of the changing relationship between furniture and work. So I'll just pause there for, for a moment and um, uh, maybe open it up for if people have questions uh, or I'm happy to, to entertain anything or Jake and I can kind of banter back and forth and uh, talk about things if, as uh, as makes sense. So I think there are ways you can raise your hand or, or jump in if you want. Um, and so we'll keep an eye on that if you want to do so. Yeah, we've got our eyes on the Q&A uh, section as well as the chat section. So if anyone has any questions, please feel free to uh, give a shout there. Otherwise, um, feel free to, uh, to just jump in and, and talk with us as well. Kevin, one of the things, you know, as you're talking, I was, I was thinking about uh, another article that we read from McKinsey talking about these three horizons uh, that we're, we're approaching. One being, you know, the crisis to downturn, uh, which we're, we're somewhat in, right? And so we're kind yeah. of looking at how might, we, how might we deal with this? We're all put on our heels. How are we going to react? The next piece would be the, uh, the recovery. And the third piece would be the new normal, the next normal. One of the things that I started to think about as you were talking was this notion that, you know, as we're engaging in getting work done, despite being quarantined or separated or not traveling as much as we're used to, is the fact that um, we're developing new habits and we're starting to get into these new habits. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on um, how might this change even even um, how people are buying furniture. So in, in two ways there, right? So one would be, do we expect to see an increase in systems furniture and, you know, going back to the old days of the cubicle uh, to kind of create some separation between us and the next person? Is this going to spur the end of the, the whole uh, benching and open office scenario uh, to your point, which we're 
starting to get uh, trends that I was declining. So is that going to accelerate that decline? The other piece would be, do you think that we'll see people come back to the office in full force? You know, one of the things that we were showed us was that we can, um, uh, people are looking at the their office footprint a little bit differently in terms of, you know, maybe they're condensing one of our clients who has a, a large uh, multi-story office in downtown Atlanta, um, you know, they're renting out, they, they condense their staff, move to um, uh, WeWork and more work at home situations and are renting out the top portion of their, their building, um, which makes me wonder, you know, are we going to see uh, the need to buy furniture for the home through the office for our employees? Um, what are your kind of general thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of a lot of good questions. I think that, um, I mean, you and I have discussed this before. I think you know what I I have started to wonder if you if we thought about the sort of evolving work styles where, um, you know, it used to be everyone had an office, and then there's been this increasing, you know, scale of a footprint of kind of shared workspaces available for people to collaborate or have more casual kind of interactions, coffee shop, almost like a coffee shop in the front of the office and things like that. Um, but that's also led to kind of this WeWork phenomenon, which is to say, if you're going to have a coffee shop, you could go to an actual coffee shop or go to a space that's, you know, deliberately designed for more kind of sharing. Um, and does every, does every office have, need to have its own coffee shop, if you will? Um, I right. think through this, through this process, it's, it is going to start to push on, how much real estate is actually needed to be invested by a company? You know, how many seats are you trying to fill? And I think, you know, the example you mentioned, you know, we've, we've had at least, I think two clients that I, I can think of off the top of my head who, you know, not necessarily furniture companies, but companies that have been deliberately reducing their footprint. And, um, you know, even to the point of not even having enough seats in the building, right. To support their, the staff that they have with the, the ready assumption that people are going to kind of be in and out and not have kind of a permanent uh, spot in, in their office, which immediately starts leaning on co-working and so forth. Right. Uh, but it's also going to lean on working at home, but it kind of dialing back to your, so dialing back to your earlier question. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. I think I, I was just having this slide yesterday. In fact, but the habits part, you and I talk about habits and culture change, change quite a bit. I do wonder the longer we stay, quarantined at home and this more we work from home i think individual workers will develop new habits um, that they might not have already had and, and they may not want to give up and so <laughs> there are going to be some improvements perhaps in work you know work-life balance or what have you or even just the conditions of their home office setup which may make it even more doable and i think so there's there's going to be that kind of pressure that coupled with the desire to reduce the footprint um, there may be some mutual agreement there I do think you know the the, the future model, though, um, which you were kind of suggesting, I, I is 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 less certain. But I think you could you can hypothesize certainly that I think we may see a little bit more of a return toward you know panels uh, or some kind of division you know division individual space. I think there's no question that we're going to have new health protocols to and infection control protocols in offices or any public space that we are not yet familiar with. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit uh, before, but I, you know, my my sense is that I think we're, you know, just like we had, we have new new security protocols in stadiums and in airports 
as a result of the the terrorist attacks from 9-11, um, I think we're going to have new infection and health protocols coming out of this situation, which will change the whole dynamic of the office to some degree. It may mean more division. It may mean more, which I think is an opportunity for furniture. But I think that the trend toward smaller and shared offices are still, that's still going to persist because I think people will be able to work from the road, work from home, work from co-working spaces um, because they will have developed these new habits and so forth. Um, so let me I think ask that you. The, but but the, the other part that you mentioned though about the purchasing, that's a whole other angle because I think the question of like how people get these products and where they go is going to be, there's a whole other kind of logistical challenge there uh, to consider. Yeah, and that's where I was going to go next is one of the pieces that jumps out to me is that a lot of, from a manufacturing perspective, a lot of furniture is created to last, you know, for 120,000 years. And, um, and we know that it just doesn't happen that way. But then it makes me think about, you know, how does the role of the facility manager change um, when they're kind of trying to manage these uh, different spaces, whether it's in the actual office, in a third place, uh, or from home. And it makes me wonder if we might see manufacturers come out with um, more tiered product lines. So if you are going to have kind of that commercial grade in the office, do you need to have some sort of a prosumer level that uh, the facility manager can purchase and get to uh, someone's home, right? So it, it makes me wonder about how the mix of place may create a shift in what level of furniture people are, are manufacturers could provide. Um, and again, as you were just mentioning, what kind of pressure does that put on the supply chain? You know, the innovation may yeah, not yeah. necessarily in product, but it may be in supply chain or uh, e-commerce and all these other things that, um, you know, people are, are, are so used to on a consumer level, but are not quite used to on a B2B level. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think, I think it's, it'll be interesting to see um, I, I, I think that there's, there's a lot of headroom for organizations to grow. I mean, this would not be easy, but there's opportunities to facilitate the transaction for products in the home. And it's, it's, you know, the challenge is that it, you know, it's a, it's a steep mountain to climb because it's a whole lot easier to develop, to, to deliver a whole truckload of furniture at, at a central location in a city center and install a bunch of workstations and so forth. But yeah, you, you can definitely see, you know, models where somehow furniture is delivered um, through a commercial entity that's either paid through, through their employer, um, uh, but then ultimately arrives uh, possibly in their home. I mean, certainly chairs, I mean, seating, um, but I can imagine other kind of kinds of products, right? Other kinds of technology support products, uh, monitor support arms, all of these, all the same kind of ergonomic concerns that you'd see in an office. If people start, you know, reconcile, if organizations start reconciling with the fact that their office, their workers are working at home, it gets. I mean, there are lots of questions, but liability questions or questions about who does the installation, how do repairs work. Um, but, you know, as you and I have discussed in other occasions, I think that, you know, there, there seems to me to be also opportunities to move toward uh, what seem like significant changes in the, in the way that the, or the uh, industry works. But I think our possibilities, things like, you know, licensing models for furniture or 
you know, our leasing sort of models, which again, seems crazy, but you know, we do it with cars, we do it with our cell phones. And, you know, if there was an ecosystem that was developed in such a way where, um, you know, products could be used for a time and then taken out and if there was enough of a, of an infrastructure to drop off and pick up and kind of, you know, move, you know, move in this way. And there's, there's a way you can imagine a circulatory system for, office products that wouldn't be so kind of monolithic in one way. Yeah, so um, I want to read this question from Sarah. Uh, and the question says, um, I'm already seeing a trend around the retrofit. Most organizations are considering coming back to work in a phased manner. In planning for the new way of working, there is a tremendous impact on socialization through physical distancing, which is a natural deterrent in returning back to the workplace. Also in this initial phase of now is the new way of working. Organizations are not prepared in the wake of this crisis to make the financial investments surrounding intermediate solutions like screens, power, et cetera. We're also concerned about the emotional and cognitive well-being of an individual as we consider spatial barriers as modifications in the retrofit. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of good thoughts there. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of things. I, I think, you know, there's, there's just, there is so much to unpack here. And this is partly why I think, you know, while the pandemic is affecting everyone, it's going to be even more dramatic in terms of this, this space, in terms of trying to support work processes and so forth. I mean, it's why I think, you know, if I look at, you know, what the, the papers and books that companies like Automatic and Basecamp uh, promote, it's not just these products that they have. I mean, Basecamp obviously has a product that supports these things, but Automatic, you know, they just make websites, basically. I mean, they do a lot of things, but they don't have, a, they don't have skin in the game, but they are philosophically in the place where not only do they think that work can happen asynchronously and not at the same time, the same place, but it actually can be detrimental to productivity and detrimental to someone's work-life balance and detrimental to, um, you know, just you know, sort of a, a egalitarian kind of view of, of the world. And so it's, it's, yeah, it puts suddenly a lot of pressure on, you know, and I think that what's going to, as I say, I think people will feel, um, you know, aside from the economic hardship and, you know, the, the kind of the social crisis that we're all dealing with, we're all, I mean, if, you, if you're like me and many of us, you know, I'm at home with my kids all the time, which is, you know, not entirely a bad thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's, it's actually had created a lot of opportunities for family time and all kinds of things. So I think that the, um, I think many will start to feel that. And I think it's, you know, so, but it is going to start to put pressure. And, and, and I think as um, Sarah, as your, as your, as your note remarks, the idea that, um, we're being pressured to figure out other ways of working, other ways of also socializing. I agree. I think it's going to, it bring, it'll bring genuine questions about what, you know, that office that we all drive to or to train to get to um, on a daily basis. And we all have a commute time and all those things, especially in a larger city where that's a real issue. Um, you know, it's going to continue to put the, I mean, that pressure was already there. I think, I mean, if you think about a lot of larger cities, Certainly in the New York area, there, there are a lot of people that I know that only, you know, they only come into work, you know, three or four days a week. You know, they just, they just assume they're going to work from home a few days a week. I think that pressure will continue. And, 
you know, it will force um, organizations to think about how much real estate do they really need? You know, what is the nature of those offices? I think the idea of a retrofit, I think you're right. I think it's going to be, you know, a lot of organizations are going to ask themselves, how big of a footprint do we need? What is the work, what work is actually going to take place there? How full does that office need to be for me to justify its being there? And that's why I've, I've made a joke in the article about how much couch time do we want to actually, you know, plan for. But it's because I think that the, you know, again, these real estate costs are, uh, they're hard costs and they're really, you know, and their companies, especially if they're, you know, our clients, you know, our, you know, furniture clients, that is, um, you know, they're going to be pressured in, in all the economic ways. And they're going to be thinking about this, you know, what actually contributes to productivity. And I think it's a, it's, to me, it's incumbent on organizations that are trying to support work through furniture to expand their repertoire in terms of how they think about supporting uh, supporting work, and it goes beyond furniture. So if you're, you know, if you're if you're a manufacturer, I think you can't ignore how technology is affecting work and how what is your response to that? How do you do you, those four quadrants I was articulating earlier? Do you pursue them in different ways? If you're a dealer, you know you've got to think about you know, what is the more comprehensive package of services or products that go beyond our traditional sense of what furniture is to better uh, support, uh, support work, if that's, if that's your aim. In part, because I think that the, the, if the furniture footprint is getting smaller, the work footprint is not getting smaller, but just the furniture piece of it is. I'm not sure. But Sarah asked a lot. I had a lot of questions, had a lot of points in there, so I hope that was addressing them. But yeah, see, Jake, 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 you can tell me if I'm missing something. Look at the question myself. <laughs> no, I mean, I think what is interesting, one of the interesting things from Sarah's note, um, and apologies, Sarah, for going off on tangents here, but it was a great note, is this there's push and pull, this tension in between um, emotional and cognitive well being, you know, the desire mm -hmm. to be social, but also the desire to be safe. And what does that mean? And then how does that intertwine with this almost kind of chicken and egg dynamic between uh, facility retrofits and spending, right? So if, right. Uh, if we're in a downturn, now a lot of organizations are eager to uh, drop, drop money on, on new office space, um, yet that also kind of helps create that sense of safety. But then there's this tension between uh, hey, we're all in the same space. I want to be close and, and interact and, you know, let's get on the whiteboard. Let's sit on the couch. Let's collaborate. But yet you have to kind of have this trust with your coworkers that they're, um, you know, living responsibly, whatever. There's just kind of this where it'll be a very interesting kind of phase one to uh, jumping back into to work, which is supposed to be uh, interesting to see how people, uh, how people approach that. Yeah, very true. Um, Kevin, Kevin, another piece that um, I wanted to touch on as you were talking was that, you know, so we're, we're developing these new habits in this kind of uh, through this crisis and, and downturn and, and into the recovery phase. We'll have to think differently. We'll have to set up new strategies, new operational um, goals, types of things. One of the things that mm, I was thinking about as you were talking is uh, in this new normal, what you mentioned that companies will have to start to pivot and think differently. And it made me wonder about partnerships um, in the sense that uh, if we compare things to technology, you know, you have 
hardware manufacturers and software manufacturers. And you could argue that that's the same and on the rise for work, where you have hardware manufacturers and software manufacturers, right? So you have um, the, the Herman Millers, the steel cases, who are, are creating the hardware. But then on the other hand, you have the Slacks, the Asanas, um, even Zoom, that are creating software. But these two organizations, these two kind of uh, buckets have not poured into each other, right? They're not mixing quite yet, right? So we're, we're using intermediaries uh, to intertwine these, right? Through our laptops, through our mm-hmm. phones, through our tablets, what have you. Um, where does this, and even in, uh, when we think about ergonomics and uh, health and wellness, you could see different partnerships with, um, you know, even athletic brands or um, just health, general health and wellness brands. Where do you see the role of brand partnerships uh, moving forward? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. And, and obviously, this is, you know, for some of the larger players in particular, they have started to explore some of these partnerships. So for, you know, so, oh, and, yeah, and, and, or, 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 for, or for that matter, have tried some of their own, right? So um, certainly, Hayworth has pursued its own, some of its own technology platforms. Herman Miller has been investing this way. Certainly, Steelcase's relationship with Microsoft, you know, is an overt play to try to figure that out. I do think, I mean, I think it's a good way to, to look at it because, and, you know, the, the, the challenge can be is that there's, you know, the, the economic or profitability models are, 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 can be radically different. Software's, you know, profit margins are huge or can be huge. Um, compared to hardware. Um, so on one hand, you know, you've got these, you know, it's, it's very easy for Slack to get, you know, to double its customer base and not, you know, hardly, uh, hardly expand its um, expenses at all. Whereas, you know, a, any, a manufacturer in the traditional sense um, has, has a much harder time doing that. Um, by the same token, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's important, I think, to also keep an eye on you know, Apple is as an example of a company that, um, you know, they're one of the things they're most famous for is, is their hardware and software integration. So the way they have been able to create, you know, an experience like an iPhone and many of their other products I've had, um, it's because they had a very, very tight integration between the pro- the physical product design and the user interface design. And um, I do, you know, there's there's clearly many categories where that, there is an opportunity there. So, you know, I, it does feel to me like, um, you know, and, and part of this is, you know, the, the Steve case book that you've um, uh, talked about. Third, the, third wave. The, yeah. Third wave. Uh, but the talks a lot about how, you know, a lot of the, the, the best, you know, technology innovation that needs to occur over the next several decades needs to happen outside of Silicon Valley. And I think, I think it's true in Silicon Valley, has all kinds of amazing aspects, but also has some major problems as we're all aware in terms of, you know, um, you know, you know, just culturally and the income gap and, you know, lots of issues, um, uh, lack of diversity and things like that. So, and not only that, but they also, I think they also lack a perspective about, um, you know, physical products. And I think the reality is we all live in the physical world. We all have to deal with these things. I think that the integration of software into hardware products will, you know, it's just going to become more and more of a reality. I mean, the whole internet of things promise and um, smart products promise. um, It seems scary and foreign to uh, manufacturers who have gotten nowhere 
you know, haven't gotten anywhere near these things. And this is, this is the, one of the major obstacles, but it's also one of these things where it's, um, it's going, you know, the winners are going to figure it out. You know, there's no question that these products are going to become more and more capable and they don't need to be an immediate computer everywhere, but there's no question that some level of integration, you know, thinking, starting to think about, um, certainly in the technology space, as they're creeping more and more into physical products, they're thinking about the interactions, the ease of use, the coordination, how these things work together. Um, if your desk looks like mine has like wires all over it, of course, <laughs> you know, it's one of these things where, you know, I mean, at some point you can, all of these things feel like kind of stop gaps for what the next technical evolution is going to be in terms of supporting work. So let me build on that for a moment. And, and again, if, if anyone has any questions or thoughts, please feel free to either jump in right in the Q and A section, uh, jump in the chat channel um, and we'll make sure it, uh, we respond. Um, Kevin, kind of building on that, I can kind of see how we're moving towards, you know, we could be moving towards this place where you've got um, this new flow of work, right? In this hypothetical future state where People are very um, in different places. We're working in different ways. We've established new habits. Um, you've got different types of work solutions from a manufacturing and from a software perspective. So then you've got these, you've got the big guys, right? The majors, you've got smaller players. Then you have ancillary players and you have um, new threats or substitutes, right? So any like Apple jumping into furniture manufacturing or even a, a Slack or a Nike or whoever, right? So um, as we think about these things or even, you know, even closer to home, the Ikeas or the West Elms, right? Um, they're trying to make that play. You need a sense of agility, but you also, there's pros and cons to being big versus being small versus being on the outside. Mm -hmm. How do you see these three trajectories colliding? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I, I feel like the, the winners are going to be whoever can come up with the formulas that are going to make it an easy, easier way to deal with a more comprehensive offering. Mm -hmm. um, now, I think, you know, the majors have an advantage, of course, because they, um, they're already in the room, they already have a lot of product categories, their pressure, I mean, to your point, is going to be, can they be agile enough to continue to expand their footprint? I mean, of course they, in many ways they are through acquisition and, you know, trying to move, but, you know, they often move to adjacent acquisitions and, you know, it's, it's moving to a, a totally different space seems quite, risks seeming quite foreign. Uh, but there's no question that I think if you think, again, if you think about the office, you know, or supporting work in a broader sense, um, you very quickly move from, you know, desks and chairs and panels to lighting, technology, audiovisual screens, all of those things. I mean, these, and these aren't, you know, this isn't a new piece of information for many people, but I think it's just becoming more and more true. And so if your customers are going to look for um, a more comprehensive way to think about their, their space and because it's not, you know, these things aren't mutually exclusive. And this is partly where, you know, a role that dealers obviously can play because they, the extent to which they're aggregators. Um, but to your point, I mean, so the, the you know, the, the agility part, yeah, smaller players, niche players can really shine because, in, or ancillary, because if they have a really great product that it's kind of a must have, um, they can, it can be kind of a way to, 
pierce the veil of these these majors because the majors you know their 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 achilles heel is the fact that they want to sell you everything and they may not have the best version of everything so aggregating those products you know together and making it an easier experience is ultimately going to be the question you know can but so there's not a simple answer can a major grow fast enough into multiple product categories to be kind of a single source provider for many, many things and more of a turnkey solution, maybe. I mean, they have more of the means to do so. Can the dealer as an aggregator of services and manufacturers get its, you know, up its game from a, you know, its own sophistication and ability to kind of nimbly work around multiple manufacturers um, and being able to kind of bundle these and create the best customer experience possible because that would put them in a good position or can a smaller manufacturer, they've got to create that killer product that, you know, regardless of the position of the major or regardless of the, uh, the influence of the dealer that has, um, that's something that's good enough, frankly, to make sure it's on the menu of any customer. So, um, I mean, there, there are different ways in. And, and I think what you were alluding to a moment ago too, of course, is what this is partly why a lot of times innovators come from outside of an industry because it's, if you're a player in the industry, you've got a foothold and you've got a stake and you've got, it's, and you're moving from where you are, you know, organizations that are coming in from the outside have, you know, they have some advantages. They have, they have some disadvantages of course too, because they may lack relationships and knowledge and so forth, but they have the relative advantage of looking at the whole ecosystem and saying, okay, how, how might we solve this problem the problem differently? And it is true that, I mean, I don't know if it's, I don't know if these Silicon Valley type players are, you know, if, they're, if they have a huge um, appetite to rush into this marketplace because it's complicated and frankly not as profitable as their own. But the things that, you know, you and I have, have brought this up in the past, the things that would be concerning to me as a furniture company would be, um, just the, I forgot the, the name of the, there was a display device that Google was starting to sell, which was using yeah, the Jamboard. Yeah, Jamboard, which was not just the, not just the software to your point, but they're actually selling a piece of hardware. And now they might not be manufacturing it. Chances are they have a partner who's putting that together. But if I were a furniture company, I'd be worried about that kind of a move as much as anything, because as soon as Google, you know, who has, you know, many of us are, you know, many people use, if not Google Classroom, Google um, Google Office Suite and so forth, um, you know, it's an easy step for them to start moving into that kind of a space. Right. Sally asks, um, another question is, what do you feel the timelines are for the post-pandemic recovery and the new normal? Yeah, I mean, I'd be a rich guy if I knew the exactly answer <laughs> to that question. But but I would, I would say this, I do think that, I think that the... There's no question that the next, I would say, 12 months, maybe even 18 months, I think we are a, in a survive versus thrive mode. Um, you know, there are some organizations that are just simply not going to survive this, I believe. Um, and a lot depends on, you know, um, how much capital they have. Like what, you know, there are a lot, of, a lot of factors there, right? But I think that on the other hand, it's, it is an interesting opportunity if you're in a position to, if you can kind of hunker down a little bit, which of course a lot of organizations are trying to do, you know, coming out of this could be something that is a thriving moment. As I say, I think that the extent to which there's, um, this is a catalyst for 
and accelerating changes that were perhaps already underway. I and mean, none of these things, these concepts we're talking about here are, are brand new, aside from you know, talking suddenly about infection control. Um, but I think a lot of these, you know, it's just going to push on these things even harder. So the opportunity is, you know, if we can, you know, if it's accelerating into the future, we, the extent to which if you can use a time um, when we're hunkering down at home to work with your teams to start thinking about some even bigger and more expansive ideas, there could be some opportunity. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that, you know, into, you know, 2021, that things will start to, you know, move into, you know, either the, at the beginning or, the, you know, maybe, you know, perhaps by Neocon next year, um, that there will be something that's a little bit more approximating some norm, normalcy. Um, but I think that the, you know, again, what the new normal is, so to speak, is going to be, um, I think we're, you know, it's, it's going to be forthcoming. I mean, I think even for that matter, I mean, depending on what our, uh, on a cultural level, what we're able to do from a testing standpoint and, you know, what new protocols will, calls will come out, even just what even going to a show like Neocon, what that even looks like, um, you know, in 12 months is going to be, is going to be interesting. But I mean, I think this, this year in particular, there's, I mean, it seems pretty clear that, that this is, you know, I think many are just trying to figure out what's their game plan to get to January, 2021. That seems to be kind of a common discussion I seem to be having with a lot of our clients inside this industry and outside of it. Um, and then I think, you know, but, but, you know, how to, how to not overanalyze the, uh, the crisis part of it, but to think about what is thriving into 2021 look like, um, you know, I think it's, it, it means, you know, starting to, you know, the, the, I, I do think that there's, there's opportunity in this, in this kind of, uh, this, this sort of hard reset as we were describing it. I think, um, you know, not to get overly dramatic, but there was an interesting article I read a couple of days ago. Um, I think John Meacham was talking about, um, the sort of pretty significant cultural changes that came out of the, um, after the, uh, uh, the black death, right? Which is okay. This is <laughs> maybe dramatic, but they were talking about how it's, you know, it's, it was a pretty significant shakeup in terms of value systems and how people think about these things. And I think, you know, it may not shake people completely to their core, but it may shake up their perceptions of work. And I think that we'll start to see the seeds of that probably in 2021. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I agree with that in terms of a time frame. I think there's a couple of, I, I still have open questions around, um, you know, that we're going to see when, when are people comfortable gathering in large groups again? Yeah. Uh, when does travel start to pick back up and what does that look like? Um, work is an interesting one to me also. And it kind of goes back to uh, one of Sarah's earlier points in terms of um, how do you create a workspace that feels safe and comfortable for people and kind of balances that socialization aspect. Yeah. One of the one of the pieces that I think is interesting to keep an eye on is well, I guess two pieces. One is uh, we tend to be a lagging uh, indicator of the broader economy sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yep. The other piece is that might we see a push towards using office space as a talent attraction uh, attraction tool? We we already know that's a thing, right? People use that as um, a talent attraction. But you're going to have, you know, we know that we have super high unemployment rates, um, a lot of really talented people out there. Those who invest in their space as a way to create um, a safe, comforting environment, um, you know, that can be kind of a, a very 
a good message to send to people as you're kind of looking to make that talent grab as the economy picks up. So mm-hmm, I'll be interested mm-hmm. to see how um, people uh, reshape their office space in that sense um, will be interesting. Another question from Sarah that just came in was, what are your thoughts on creating a strong community and company culture while everyone is working remote? In the first and second phase of return to workplace, most organizations will still have high dependence on technology and teaming tools like Zoom or Teams, even when everyone returns back to the workplace. Conference rooms will no longer accommodate more traditional occupancies uh, that they did yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I, it's, it's, I think that we are, as I say, I think that there is kind of a, we're at a little bit of a tipping point. Um, one of the, one of the hats that I wear is um, I serve on the board of this nonprofit organization called IXDA, which is a global organization that ser- that deals with the uh, interaction design. And there was, um, and so there's been, and this is a very technically savvy group of individuals work for a lot of big software companies and so forth, dealing with interaction design issues. And these, uh, and so one of the things that happened just in the last week was that there was actually a fairly significantly attended virtual event run by our uh, Berlin chapter. So ISDA Berlin. Um, and they just published an article, kind of a, a, a reflection on it uh, on Medium. And they, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's, they were joking about how it was kind of a meta thing because they spent, it's, it, was a, it was a virtual discussion talking about virtual work. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, it, but, it's, but it's kind of this, you know, they're, they're starting to wrestle with these issues. And one of the, one of the um, comments that was made had to do with, you know, they, they actually in some ways likened it to the way, you know, we originally th- thought about how movies, when movies were new, um, they were effectively just like plays. I mean, it was sort of like the, the paradigm was a play. And so it was essentially like a stage and you just had a camera, you know, sitting there and you had people entering stage left and stage right. And you, you know, basically it was like, like a filmed play. And of course, filmmaking has evolved you know, dramatically over the last, you know, 100 years now to a point where it's an entirely different kind of a thing. And of course, you throw in the web and what's happening on, let's say, Instagram, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's becoming a whole other thing too. But I guess the, the point of it being, I think we have fixed ideas about what work is supposed to be, what corporate culture is supposed to be, and what's required to do that. Um, what happens in a conference room, what happens in a, in a private office, you know, as I mentioned in the article, come in and close the door. There are all these kind of there are these kind of cultural touchstones for the way we think about culture and what's required. Um, the idea that we all have to get together and meet, um, you know, I think it, it will, it will genuinely start to press on how true these things are, or is it just habit? And as Jake was mentioning, may it start to push on new habits that we haven't yet figured out as, you know, is returning to the workplace. And again, of course, so much of this is about, this is, we're talking so much about uh, white collar kind of knowledge work as opposed to physical work, but the return to the workplace, returning might not mean returning physically. And I think it's, you know, as it, as it pertains to culture, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's, it's one of the things I heard, a, there was a pretty extensive interview I heard with a guy who, one of the founders of um, Automatic, where he was talking at, at some length about you know, they have a very, very strong culture, but they're, you know, they're, I forget how many countries they're in, but they're, they're, they're distributed worldwide. You know, they, they, they do have very meaningful 
deliberate, I should say, um, occasions where they get everybody in the same room. Um, a few times a year, I think they also have smaller groups where they meet, you know, certain increments. Um, so meaning, and, and they're, they're an extreme case. They're a software company. Not every, not every organization is going to function that way. But I think if you, you know, it's kind of a user research paradigm where you can think about, you know, a lot of times the, the uh, hints at the future, hints at the innovative, innovative paths are at the ends of a spectrum of a bell curve. So while these guys might be outliers today, there might be hints of how future work might start to look, which is yeah. to say, you know, if we think about, you know, so they, you know, they're, if most organizations are, let's say 80 or 90% in the office and 10 or 20% out of the office, they're probably the opposite of that. But if that start, if that, if that yardstick starts to move where, you know, we start looking at, at, at a lot of corporate clients where it's more like 60, 40 or something like that, or even 50, 50. Yeah. I think that, I think what new patterns of what it means to have social cohesion um, that isn't centered around, let's say the break room or whatever, <laughs> you know, I think is going to change. I think is, is this is what certainly the innovators that, you know, in organizations like Slack or companies like this are starting to, starting to, create and um you know it's gonna i think it actually, actually on some level i think it may change our whole notion of what work is um and um you know if, if you if you as, as again i other people i follow base camp guys they talk quite a lot about how you know they, i mean they're they're kind of a you know if you're familiar with the results only uh work kind of methodology which is less based on eight hour days and more based on just getting stuff done um, there's, there's a lot of, there's kind of a revolution in kind of the way productivity and culture is held that may not be based on these historical norms based on physical places. Yeah. One thing that I would, add, I guess a couple of things I would, that, that, that makes sense. And a couple of things I would add to that is um, I think, you know, in terms of community and um, culture, I think of what this puts a, a big pressure on is, do you have an identity as a company? Um, I think that organization, you know, we all kind of have, uh, there's a separation between habits and identity and the habits somewhat uh, either fall out of your identity or fight against your identity as an organization. And I think having a good sense of that as a, as a team, um, then you can start to think about how might we re replicate that. So part of it is productivity, you know, there's these business interactions, but then there's all the stuff that's non-business, right? And that's, it's just a little bit harder to have those um, side conversations or those jokes um, when you can't just, uh, when you're not just walking by someone, right? You got to be very intentional about calling someone or getting on a phone with someone. It's almost, you know, it's, it's, um, it reminds me of cutting the cord with cable. So you can't, you know, I cut the cord uh, several years ago and I can't channel surf anymore. I've got to actually be really deliberate about what I pick to watch. Um, and it kind of makes me think about that from a habit perspective. How are we finding ways to interact with people? But I would say in terms of creating a, a culture and a community, it, it's good to press it into what is the identity of the company? Are you guys um, a uh, no BS kind of grind it out type of a company? And then what kind of would get you guys excited? Um, are you a little bit more playful? Um, what are the things that, you know, if people design, one of the things that, um, you know, we really encourage creativity and 
um, and problem solving and stuff like this. So there's an kind of more academics, more reading. So there's, you know, things like book clubs or stuff like that. Um, I know one of our clients was a, um, many years ago, a software company, they, um, they are really passionate about video games. Uh, and so they would all play smash brothers and, you know, that's something that you can do, um, you know, outside of, of the office and, and just finding ways to connect, I think that are authentic to your identity can kind of help keep that sense of, of the company going because, you know, there's, um, there's the work stuff, but then there's a whole lot of things that happen that are not work stuff that really kind of m help the team gel um, and help the organization move forward in a, in a healthy way. You know, if you create and Kevin, you'd always talk about this, um, even early on when I started at People Design, a big piece of what we're trying to do is create an environment where people feel like they can be creative, feel like they can be um, a little bit more vulnerable, share their ideas, um, and you find the right things, a, a balance of humility yet boldness. And um, so kind of having an understanding of who your organization is, what's, what's its identity, and then trying to find uh, how can we replicate those behaviors or how can we create an avenue or an environment where those behaviors uh, can, can play out. Um, knowing that we're kind of, they're hitting the top of the hour here at yeah. the, uh, it's 1259. Uh, if anyone wants to jump in with any questions, please do so. Um, otherwise, Kevin, I just have one last question for you. Sure. Uh, you know, we've talked about some high level stuff, of course, um, as we do, but, but if, you know, when it comes to kind of today, rubber meets the road, are there either a couple of actions that you think companies should take or a couple of questions organizations should be asking themselves uh, that might help them either make decisions or, or take an action today? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, in my mind, I mean, as you know, I mean, the, the themes that we promote at People Design um, are as true today or more than ever in my mind, which is, you know, I mean, we, we, we talk about meaning and experience, which is to say, what does your company mean? And I think it both, it, it, it both replies to um, customers, but also staff along the cultural lines that we were just kind of, that you were just touching on there, Jake, you know, the meaning part and then the experience is the, you know, how easily can that experience be is that's what I was kind of touching on there a moment ago, but I think the more action oriented steps, I mean, there are things, I think, you know, taking a hard look at some of the, the value propositions that your company offers, which is to say, what is the offering? Yeah. You know, I think the, the overt kind of subtext to this article had a lot to do with, you know, as you mentioned, Jake, hardware and software, you know, there's, there's a lot of essentially, you know, kind of, you know, physical products. Um, and we think about furniture. How do we think about furniture? What does furniture do? And we've tried to build on these other, you know, layers of meaning, as I mentioned, around productivity or ergonomics or culture. But, you know, really, those are much broader topics. And they, and if, you know, and again, this, this, this time of um, kind of anxiety um, can be fearful, but it's also an opportunity because it can shake some things loose. I mean, I think taking a hard look at your product portfolio, doing a serious kind of 80-20 or 60-40 kind of analysis on, you know, what do you really do? What are you really good at? Really focus on those things. And then, but then also in the same way, I mean, in our, the way we think about these things is sharpening your focus as a way not to just narrow what you're doing, but also kind of almost like in an Alice in Wonderland kind of way, it may open your eyes to other opportunities for it. So if you start thinking about yourself as a 
is a company that focuses on one of these four quadrants, for example, are you really all about in-person work or are you about individual work or are you about asynchronous work? I mean, some of these gets quickly into technology solutions, uh, which may lead to things like partnerships, you know, Jake, as you mentioned, but I think starting to broaden your perspective as to what, what is the value proposition of the company and how are you going to execute on it? Um, again, it may sound a little abstract, but you know, there's no better time than a time when we're all feeling a little bit in free fall <laughs> to sort of really ask yourself, what are your real core strengths and how do you, how do you build on them? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Kevin. And thank you everyone for joining us for office hours. We try to do this every month. So we'd love to have you back. And if you haven't subscribed to our newsletter, which tees these topics up, please do so. If you've logged in, you can kind of see it on the screen there, but peopledesign.com forward slash subscribe. You can listen to more office hours at peopledesign.com forward slash office hours. Thank you again, everyone, for, for joining us. If you have any questions after the fact, please feel free to shoot us an email. Reach out any way you can, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much for your time, and uh, have a wonderful day.